0: The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: All right, let's get going. Disability Law Show, we are back. It's good to have you along. James Fireman, Tamara Gopin are here. Sam Firou, and LLP. Reach out anytime, as you know by now, to uh, give the guys a call. If you want to talk to them or the respective teams, it is easy. It's one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca. We got tons of stuff to get through today, a ton of emails and questions as well. And uh, we always start off with a kind of a a case of the day or a week that was tomorrow. I'm going to throw it over to you first. What do you got going on, pal?
2: Well, it's not necessarily a week, maybe a couple of weeks, but I've been working on a mediation that I've got coming up. And I thought I would share uh, some details with our listeners and a little bit about her situation. It's Unique in the sense that she's got a condition uh, that we talk about occasionally, but it's not that common. It's called chronic fatigue syndrome. And yes, folks, this is a thing. And apparently it affects, you know, something like 3% of Canadians and mostly women uh, in their 40s and 50s. And that is exactly my client. The trouble is, is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion, which we talk about a lot as well with contexts like fibromyalgia, where doctors really don't know what's going on with you. They'll do a number of tests of various symptoms and try and address those symptoms. And in the end, we'll conclude that someone has a diagnosis like this, like fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue syndrome. What's similar about this condition with others that we talk about is that it is very subjectively reported. So you're going to hear things like obviously fatigue, but a whole host of other system function issues, like I don't know, uh, gastrointestinal things, um, you know, brain fog things, uh, insomnia with fatigue, you know, a whole host of issues that you can't necessarily specifically test for or validate with someone who's coming to her doctor and saying, "Look, I've got all of these different symptoms." But in my client situation after years of going through this and periods of on and off work she eventually did get diagnosed by two different specialists that she has chronic fatigue along with a whole host of other medical health issues and this is relevant because when she prepares her disability application to the insurance company she puts all of this information in there and and to her credit she her husband her sister everybody was involved in preparing something like over 100 pages for the insurance company with medical information testimonials all the medication she was taking like it was very very comprehensive what does the insurance company do one phone call and they deny her claim that's it guys one phone call and they deny her claim so inevitably uh she and her husband came to me and you know we've now pursued a legal claim with the insurance company and I spend a lot of time actually speaking to them about their situation and how, why is it that insurance companies continue to resist these types of claims. And I really think that they look at profiles like this and they just don't know what to do. I mean, it, these adjusters don't have the kind of training to understand sophisticated medical conditions. The Denial letter really was a classic, you know, you you don't have any objective medical information. So there's nothing we can look at that solidly says that you can't work. And I think in part, they held against her that she had continued to try and work in some partial capacity with lots of accommodations with her employer before she and her doctor decided, okay, enough's enough, we need to take you off um, working and really just focusing on your health. I think that element, though, can be very frustrating for people. And so if you're out there and you're listening to a situation like this, there are options. And I don't want people to feel like there's nowhere to turn. And I think with my client and her husband, it it felt very hopeless. They thought, well, we put our best foot forward. We were completely transparent. We provided all of this information the doctors supportive. Why is it that my claim is not being approved? And I want our listeners to understand that there are things at play here beyond just your disability claim. There's adjusters that don't have training. There's profit margins that are being looked at. Sometimes they look at the age and they think, you know what, we're going to have this person on claim for two, three, five, ten 10 years, and we're better off just denying from the start. And they will try and coax you into, hey, why don't you appeal? Even with my client who had supplied 100 pages of information, they said, oh, why don't you send us more medical information? We'll look at it again. Well, I looked at the claims file and actually they had a medical reviewer done a paper review they had hired you know someone to take a look at all this medical information and wouldn't you know it the doctor had agreed with my client and her doctors that you know this is complex it's multifactorial it can be chronic and there is no straight line from you know being sick to being healthy and so this can be fairly prolonged insurance company ignored all of that And so when you realize this, and I don't know how many of our listeners hear what we're saying here, this is a problem for insurance companies. It's a big problem for insurance companies. And I have assured my clients that we are going to be able to get this claim resolved for them. And they are going to receive the compensation that they should have gotten a long time ago before they went down this terrible path with being met with this resistance from the insurance company and being tempted to try and submit more information to appeal And just run down that clock to initiate the legal claim. So it's an interesting one, but maybe resonates with our listeners in terms of some of the common themes that we see and that we hear. And really the conclusion being that there is a path forward with our help that we do this time and time again, very successfully for our clients. And, you know, I can't say enough uh, how important it is for people to exert their rights and assert those rights with our help if they're being met with a big fat no from the insurance company. James, what do you think?
3: Well, I've got a lot of thoughts. Um, <laughs> Good. I, I have a lot of th- So first of all, it is, in one sense, very straightforward. The law on this issue, as set by courts that have been faced with with claimants in similar circumstances, that have conditions that are subjective in nature, the courts have been very clear and very consistent if you have a disability subjective objective doesn't matter that is preventing you from being able to work you're entitled to benefits that is true for mental health issues that's true for chronic fatigue it is not something that is up for debate it is absolutely 100 percent true where the difficulty lies is in proving whether or not you actually have this condition because a skeptic will say rightly that this would leave open the possibility for someone to just say hey i've got chronic fatigue now pay me my benefits whether they have it or not and in that scenario what does an insurance company do well i don't take the position that simply because someone says i have chronic fatigue that they're entitled to benefits you have to be able to show that this is a legitimate condition. And then this is where we get into the difficulty. How does one do that if you can't show in black and white objectively that this is something that is affecting? You? There's no x-ray that shows chronic fatigue. It's just not something that you can show in black and white. But there are things that you can do that will suggest that it is legitimate. First and foremost is having a discussion with your doctor and being sent to specialists to rule out other causes. As Tamara mentioned, it is a diagnosis of exclusion. And if you legitimately are suffering from a chronic fatigue severe enough to prevent you from working, then you're going to want to try and get to the bottom of it because it's not always the case that it is chronic fatigue. Sometimes it will be a result of another condition. And that's just one of the symptoms. And if that is the case, somebody who is legitimately fatigued is going to want to go to any reasonable lengths to try and discover what that is. And so an insurance company ought to be looking at what assessments, what, what referrals have been made to specialists, what testing has been done to try to rule out other causes. Where somebody has really not done anything, has not made any attempt to try and determine the underlying cause, then there would be good reason to question it. And certainly, I can say this for myself, and I know this is true for you as well, Tamar, that when someone comes to us with, uh, with a potential claim, we have to wear a skeptic hat as well. We're not going to just take anybody who says, hey, I've got chronic pain and I was denied. I haven't really been to a doctor, though. Someone comes to us and says that. I, I'm certainly not going to be interested in representing them. Because there is not going to be sufficient medical evidence, so this is where the this is where the difference lies. This is where a case can become compensable is if you can show that you have done all you can do medically to try and one determine what the underlying cause is and to find a way to treat the symptoms, even absent uh, another diagnosis that might explain it and give you an avenue for treatment. When you see that on a claim, then I'm satisfied that this is someone who is legitimately suffering from this this type of disability, and more importantly, that this is something that were in front of a judge, a judge would be satisfied with. And that's really what we're looking at. So it isn't a case of just saying, hey, I've got chronic fatigue, give me my benefits. There has to be more to it, but there can be, even if there isn't an objective medical test. There are certainly things that can be done, and if it's a legitimate issue, almost certainly will be done, and we'll be able to see that. So this is really the way that I see these types of claims. It is absolutely something that you are entitled to benefits for. This is legitimately preventing you from being able to work. You are entitled to those benefits. And if you are doing what you should be doing, if you're going to your doctor, if you are getting tested for other potential causes, if you are trying different treatment modalities, and they're unfortunately not succeeding and you're not able to work, then your disability benefits should be paid. You're suffering from a medical condition that is preventing you from being able to do your own occupation. And that is the definition of long-term disability benefits. That's what you know. when you have that, you're entitled to those benefits. So if you're in that position and your insurance company has said, well, we don't see any objective basis for your claim where you don't have any objective evidence to support that you have a disability and you've been through the ringer, you've gone through all this testing, then you call us because there's a claim there and you're gonna be entitled to benefits. And if you're in a situation like tomorrow's client, when you've done that and they've sent you to one of their own doctors or they've sent your file for review by one of their own doctors and they agree, not only are you gonna be entitled to your benefits, but they're going to have to pay punitive damages on top of that for bad faith because they knew it was a legitimate claim and didn't pay.
1: Guys, we've got to slide into one quick break and we're going to uh, embark on email, which have been piling up. But uh, good opening salvo, guys. We'll get to that uh, momentarily. In the meantime, always reaching out to Tamar and James. It's a simple step by phone, one 821 Fifty nine hundred. Want to send along your own email? Help at disabilityrights.ca. And for any other questions, you can use mydisabilityquestions.com. Taking a short break. Right back. Lots
0: more. Of the disability uh, disability law show is coming up. Hang in there. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: And yeah, we're back. More of the Disability Law Show. Lots to go, so you can reach out any anytime. We'd love to get your email. It may appear on a future show. You may hear us... Talking about you and your situation. You can use a different name if you want. It doesn't matter. Just give us the content. We'd love to have it anytime. Help at disabilityrights.ca. The phone number, one eight five five. 821-5900, 1-855-821-5900, obviously a free and toll-free number for you to use to get a hold of James or Tamar's uh, crew as well, have a, a chat, will cost you nothing to pick up a phone anytime. Okay, guys, first email of the show, John says, guys, how long should it take to get a response from the insurance company? I applied for LTD six weeks ago and I still don't have an answer. I have no money coming in now and I'm really stressed that I've already been denied and they just... Haven't told me yet. What do you guys think?
2: Well, John, that could be, it could be, but it shouldn't take that long to at least get some kernel of a response from the insurance company. Most insurers will acknowledge that they've at least received your application within a week or two of submitting that application. Now, look, It's not in the policy. Here's the interesting part, right, guys? It's not in the policy when they are required to respond to claimants like John. There is a requirement on when you're supposed to apply, and there's very strict timelines around that, and the insurance company wants to see it, you know, within 30 days or within 90 days or what have you, but they don't hold themselves to the same standards in in their policies. And this is why it makes it difficult for people like John. You're just sort of waiting around. But it is unusual, John. Six weeks is too long, in my opinion. And I think that there could be a couple of issues there. So what I'd prefer to see John do is actually call the insurers, you know, customer service line, just call the main line and say, hey, submitted my application six weeks ago, haven't heard anything. Can you check to see if it's been received? Perhaps, you know, check with your employer, because the employer's got to do a form as well. John will have submitted his own application, his, you know, statement for uh, disability, and then his doctor would have prepared a statement as well and then the employer is supposed to do a statement. They, the insurance company needs all those three forms. So what I would encourage John to do is make sure those three forms are in front of the insurance company because that then will initiate the claim and try and get to the bottom of who has been assigned at the insurer to review your claim. It could be they're still waiting on information, could be they're still reviewing something and maybe they've pended the disability claim, but either way you are required to get some kind of a response and have a point person assigned to your claim so that you know that someone's reviewing it and that perhaps they haven't yet made a decision, good or bad. The tough part is, is that if there is outstanding information, it could take a long time for the insurer to review all of that and respond. And so I think about situations like pre existing condition clause reviews. We talk about that occasionally. This is a clause that arises for people who have been only covered for a year under their disability plan and they make a disability application and insurance companies will routine, routinely do what's called a pre-existing condition review where they will look at a period of time typically before your disability arose or perhaps even before your coverage arose to see whether or not the health issue that you're making a claim for today was something connected medically health issues that you had in that period of time. It's a very specific clause, very technical reason, but you can see if let's say the insurance company has written out to, you know, OHIP to get a whole summary of your OHIP uh, history to make that review. I know OHIP can take sometimes 60 days to provide that summary on behalf of claimants like John. So it can take time. But the bottom line is, is that John should know what they're doing with his claim. And I think it concerns me that it's taken so many weeks without a response at all. And then, of course, on top of everything else is that he's without funds right now. And so the fact that he's without funds, you know, could be an opportunity then as well to say to the insurance company, well, how long are you going to take to review? Are you doing a pre-existing clause review? What's happening with it? When can I expect a response? And try and keep them honest in that time frame so that you know Because if you are being denied and you've got a legitimate claim, just like we said in our opening session, I mean, this is something that you can absolutely reach out to us. Let's talk about it. Our consults are free and we can see if we can move that needle with the insurance company. What do you think, John? James?
3: I I, I certainly agree. You want to know where they are in the process. And so it's worthwhile reaching out. I would always try and do it in writing so that there's a record of it in the file that you've made an effort to get information. And once you make contact, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask for an estimate of when they believe the review will be done so that you have a date to shoot for. And sometimes that will prompt the claims handler to give themselves a deadline to do it. It might be one of, you know, a hundred things that they have to do. And so this is a way to move yours closer to the top of the pile, so to speak which is probably gonna be a good thing. You want yours reviewed sooner than later, whatever the result is so that you can move forward. Uh, If the result of your inquiry is that they have all of the information, but they're just, they haven't got around to it yet. And it's been a reasonably long amount of time. I don't know if six weeks would be enough to warrant this or not. But if we're talking about a couple of months or more, then I wouldn't hesitate to ask for what's called a without prejudice payment. If they have all of the information and they're just taking their sweet time coming to a decision, I would ask if they're able to pay you something while you're having to wait for them to assess it. And I've seen insurers do that voluntarily because they've just recognized that it's taken them longer than it ought to have to come to a decision. And so that can be a way just to alleviate some of the financial strain while you're waiting for the result but you do want to find out and make sure that they do have everything that they require. Certainly you'll know if you've submitted your part of the application and you'll probably know whether your doctor has, but as you mentioned, Tamari, maybe that your employer hasn't submitted their forms or maybe they're waiting for clinical notes from one of your doctors or therapists. And if that is the case, it's good to find that out early and see if you can help in prompting whoever it is that is holding on to the information to get that over as soon as possible. And then once they have, follow up again and say, I know that you were waiting for these records or this doctor's report. I understand you have that now. Can you confirm that you have it? And let me know when you're likely going to be able to complete your review. So that's the way that I would go about it. I certainly agree. There's no harm in reaching out. And I would do it in writing so that there is a record in the file in case the delay goes longer than it's already been.
1: Guys, let me ask you a question. I mean, this it isn't always the case, but uh, we've talked about it before. Someone feels like they're being harassed by their insurance adjuster because, I mean, they, they come off beginning being very friendly and cordial. They're your best friend, and then things can you know go sideways pretty quickly. Is there anything they can or should do to protect themselves or remedy this? What do you guys think?
2: For
3: sure. So this Definitely. just goes, yeah, this goes back to what I was saying just a moment ago. You want to put things in writing, 100%. and there's- there's two places that I would look to be doing that. One is certainly with your insurer. I would put in writing in an email. Just I, I would try to avoid anything that is an opinion, and I would state things as facts. So how do you do that if you're feeling harassed? Well, you simply say that. Um, you say that you've called me this date, this date, this date, and emailed me on this date, this date, and this date, and it makes me feel as though I am being harassed, as opposed to saying you are harassing me. Saying you are harassing me is a judgment. Saying you feel you're being harassed is just a statement of fact. That's how you feel. So that's perfectly legitimate. So you make sure that that's in writing and you ask if the claims adjuster can be switched, if, they, if you can get somebody new. Uh, because typically speaking, if they already are feeling harassed by them, it's really not going to help you to have them make promises that they're going to try and rein that in. I don't see that going anywhere because there's always going to be a certain amount of distrust, or frankly, there should always be a certain amount of distrust uh, between a claimant and the claims handler, because obviously the claims handler has different objectives than you do. And so it's really important that you have at least a cordial relationship, and if they've already violated that, then you're well within your rights to ask for somebody new. Are they just gonna give it to you? Maybe, maybe not, but you want to at least make the request. They might, in which case, problem solved. or they might not, in which case, at least there's a record of you having noted that. Now, the other place you really wanna make sure that you have this recorded is with your doctor, uh, especially if this if you have a mental health disability, then the harassment from your insurance company may be aggravating the condition that's already disabled. And so either way, even if it's a physical disability that you have, it's still important that this is recorded in medical records. And so I would not hesitate to report the behavior of the insurance company to your medical professionals and let them know uh, what they're doing and how that is impacting you on a day-to-day basis. And that's going to show up in the file when the insurance company requests those records. And if they haven't done anything to remedy the situation, then it could well expose them to having to pay damages on top of the benefits that they have. If they have done things that are inappropriate, that have made your disability worse, then they have exposure to paying damages on top of the benefits. Simple as that.
2: Look, I entirely agree. I, I can't agree with James Moore um, on all of those strategies and then some. And I think where this question becomes a challenge is what's that test? Like, how do people know if it is harassment or it's not harassment? Because it that's a big word. and And so I think the context you want to think about is this is a monthly disability benefit. And I think people lose sight of that. And it is a challenge. But the insurance company and the adjuster, in order to release that monthly benefit, typically has to have a checkpoint with you at least once a month. And that once a month, even if they approve you for a few months down the road, and maybe that gives you a little breathing room, certainly when it comes time to make big decisions, like when the definition is changing to qualify, for example, or if they're sending you to an assessment, or they've got some kind of graduated return to work plan they wanna put in place, then the touch points with you as a claimant are only going to increase. And it's going to go from a month or two to perhaps every week, every couple of weeks, especially if you're going through some kind of a rehab plan. And that absolutely can feel very intrusive. And I absolutely understand people who come to us and say, they're calling me constantly and they are harassing me. And this is, you know, and so the context and situations like that and the circumstances where someone might be in their claim is important to understand, look, is this beyond the norm or is this norm? At the end of the day, no one should feel harassed by their adjuster. Like, I think the tone of the conversations, the, you know, the manner in which you're being treated should absolutely always be with respect, with good faith, um, with openness and transparency. But again, as James mentioned, like, if it's not going in that direction, then by all means, there are options and things that you can do. And at the end of the day, if you're not certain, these are, again, perfect opportunities to reach out to us, access our resources, talk to us about what's happening with your disability claims so that we can perhaps provide some of the context and some of these strategies in terms of managing the relationship with the adjuster. Because at the end of the day, I think most people just want that benefit to continue being paid. And so you want to do that, but in a way where it doesn't harm your recovery and your health, because at the end of the day, that's not going to do anyone any good.
3: Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the situation where, you know, some people have the benefit of having been told that their benefits are going to be paid for the next X number of months. And oftentimes when that happens, people will contact me and they'll be really concerned about it. And they'll say, oh, my insurance company told me my benefits are only approved for the next, you know, couple of months. Not that they're cut off after those couple of months, but that they're only saying that they agree that they'll pay the next couple of months and then they'll have to reassess. And I always look at that very differently. I always think, wow, that's great for you. Most people don't have that benefit. (laughs) Most people are month to month, you know, because that's the way it really works. The insurance company every month can come to a new decision. And so uh, most people who are getting their LTD benefits don't have that that safety net of knowing that they're going to get the next few months. It is really something uh, that is assessed by the insurance company. Uh, at their discretion, but quite frequently. quite frequently.
1: Guys, slide into a break. we got many more email to go, so we'll uh, get to that after the short break. On the other side, here's the uh, number to reach out to James Tamar and uh, their teams, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. 855 821 5900
0: help We're back with more. Just hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: You bet. That is correct. This is the Disability Law Show, and you are with us. Good to have you along. You can always contribute to the show by uh, sending an email to the show. We'd love to get it on air and chat about it. I'm sure it's uh, compelling content for the hour. It's help at disabilityrights.ca. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, both. Samfiru, Tamarkin, LLP. Always encouraged to reach out and contact either of them with uh, with any questions or concerns. one 855 825 15900 help at disabilityrights.ca. Do they do a good job? Yeah, check the Google reviews and you will not be going anywhere else. I bet you that much. So feel free to uh, to do either of those things. Reach out by a phone call or email. Maybe we'll talk about it on this show. Guys, next one up is going to be, as mentioned, Harriet. Thank you so much uh, in advance, Harriet, for this. As I am currently on LTD and have been for nearly two years, I watch your YouTube videos and learn that a lot of people get cut off at the two-year mark. I'm really worried about this. I have a really good pension with my work though. Should I be applying for uh, early to access the pension instead? Will my pension impact that LTD benefit? Great questions. What do you guys think?
2: It is a great question. And it's actually one that I just spoke to a client about, about this idea of taking this early pension. Uh, No, Harriet, don't take the early pension. You want to see through your disability claim. And the, the simple answer is this. Most disability policies have a section in them that say, the insurance company is going to pay you X, usually about two-thirds of what you're making. But if you come into other sources of income, then the insurance company gets to deduct those sources of income if it's related to disability and there's other terms that go into it. But at the end of the day, if you're accessing that pension early because of your disability status, then some insurers will aggressively try and seek that deduction. And typically, most pensions actually pay you far more on a month-to-month basis than your LTD benefit. So it may wipe out what the disability insurer typically has to pay you month over month. And I'd much prefer to see Harriet see through that disability claim, see what the insurance company is going to say at that two-year mark instead of prematurely triggering the end of her employment and seeking that pension. Now look, this is general advice. I think where you've got pension issues, you really do want to get a consultation to allow us to look at the policy wording, understand what pension availability is there, you know, how the two interact. But on its face, I think Harriet's main concern is, look, I'm going to be cut off for LTD, but she's not cut off yet. And the insurance company has an onus to go through that process properly with certain limits in terms of what they can do. And they have to review, look, are there other jobs Harriet can do? what is her health status what does our definition say about her ability to do alternative occupations some policies even include that there needs to be a certain level of earnings that harriet is able to to achieve even with all of her health issues in some other occupation allow the insurance company to do that assessment because the vast majority of the ones that we see james and i those assessments are not done properly i mean people are getting cut off improperly at the two-year mark And then it creates a valid disability claim against that insurer for having done the analysis incorrectly, whether on the assumptions made on Harriet's health status, whether on the assumptions made on her alternative work capacity, you know, assumptions made on the earnings level. I mean, we see all sorts of errors across the board with this analysis. And at the end of the day, the courts have made clear that the onus is on the insurance company. That is their legal onus to do the the change of definition Uh, you know, review and to show that in fact there is some other work Harriet can do. And the fact that I think that she's even thinking about accessing her pension signals to me that probably she doesn't have a capacity to do an alternative, you know, job or work. And at that level of threshold of earnings that we typically talk about, which is typically the LTD benefit, right? Given, give or take two thirds of what Harriet was making before she went off on disability. So, If I'm sitting in Harriet's shoes, yes, it's nerve-wracking. Yes, we see a lot of people get denied at the two-year mark. But don't jump the gun just by virtue of accessing that pension. If you can hold off, see it through with the insurer, and then make some choices around the employment. James, what do you think?
3: I I agree, but I think there's also another really big issue here. And I will... I have to give a disclaimer first, and you touched on this, but we're not in any way pension experts. It's not what we do. Right. It's not where expertise it lies. And so when we are dealing with claimants that have pensions, I will tell those clients that you will need to get direct advice, uh, from your pension board, or if you're unionized from your union or your employer about how this is going to work. But. What I can tell you from experience, and this has held true in virtually every case I've had where I've had a client that has a pension, when you are approved for disability benefits, your pension contributions continue while you are on claim. So let's say you are on medical leave, you get approved for disability benefits, your employer would typically continue to make those pension contributions as though you were still working. And that's significant because it means your pension continues to grow. If you are denied or cut off benefits, typically those contributions would stop. However, when you bring a legal claim and you resolve it, what happens in I believe virtually every case, although there may be exceptions, which again is why I suggest you should double check. But what happens is that the insurer will write to the employer and to the pension board and advise them of the resolution and in particular, how long benefits are now paid up for. So if there is a lump sum settlement, they'll write to the employer and let them know that benefits have not paid up to date and for X amount of time into the future. And the consequence of that is that the employer typically is going to one, catch up on the pension payments that are outstanding and two, continue to make those pension payments into the future for the duration for which the benefits are to be paid or have been paid as a lump sum and that means your pension is going to continue to grow and so it is really significant on both ends both in terms of what you're getting from your disability insurer and in terms of what you're likely to get at the end of the day for your pension when you do ultimately decide to retire it's going to be significantly less if you take your pension early again Disclaimer one more time, not a pension expert, <laughs> double check everything with your pension board. But I can tell you I'm pretty confident that this is correct because this is what my understanding has been, it has been confirmed in many different cases um, through employers and pension boards. And I've never had a client come back to me and say, wait a minute, this never happened. What's going on here? So anecdotally, I can tell you that this is almost certainly how it works. But again, double check. I agree with Tamar's advice though. It is almost always going to be in your interest if you are legitimately disabled to continue your pursuit of the disability benefits and allow your pension to continue growing for the duration during which you're, you're entitled to those disability benefits.
1: And with that, we get a quick break and uh, get to a couple more questions. Again, the uh, the form MyDisabilityQuestions.com website, actually. You can use that any time. That's where we're going to go after a break, MyDisabilityQuestions.com. Good old-fashioned email is help at disabilityrights.ca or, uh, you know, leapfrog that right to a phone call with James or Tamar as well, one 855 821
0: 5,900 Disability Law Show continues. Hang in there. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.
1: And we are back. A few minutes to go on the Disability Law Show. John Schools here every week along with James, Fireman, Tamar, Agopi, and reach out to both of them. Sam Firu, Tamarkin, LLP is uh, is where they are from. You can reach out by phone, one 821 5900 Help at disabilityrights.ca as well. And, of course, catch our weekly uh, TV show as well, both of them appearing on there and educating you in that forum as well. Guys I mentioned my disabilityquestions.com we'll get to a question from that website now it says guys I'm on LTD since February 2020 almost 4 years due to CPTSD major depression anxiety panic disorder and recently mild cognitive impairment I used to be an executive in a sales role. My income was a combination of base salary plus commissions. I had a very high income. I would like to know if under the concept of any occupation, the insurance would need to consider my commission as commensurate as well, or just my base salary. Would the commensurate amount be adjusted to the current year? What do you guys think?
3: Loaded question. A lot of different concepts here that we need to Review. I want to make sure that this is something that our listeners are going to well understand. So, first of all, the any occupation period, there we're talking about after benefits have been paid by your LTD insurer for the first two years, the test changes from whether you're disabled from your own occupation to whether you're disabled from any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. That's after two years of benefits. At that point, when they're looking at whether there's any occupation that you are Qualified by training, education, or experience, they also have to show that any occupation they say you can do is going to pay you a commensurate income, which the courts typically interpret as being 60, 65, 66% of what you're earning, unless it's specified in the policy. And where it is, it's usually in that range anyway. So that is what this person is asking about. When you're in the any occupation period, does the insurance company consider commission? as part of that commensurate or only the base salary. Because obviously if your commission earnings are considered as part of the commensurate earnings test, then the occupations that there, that will be available are going to be far fewer because it will only be those that are 60, 65% of the full base plus commission. And the answer to that really is going to depend one on the policy and two on how your employer has updated uh, the insurer those are both live issues so some policies will be very specific in terms of the formula used they'll have a base plus a commission and that is really what it should be particularly for people who have a significant part of their income uh, as a bonus or as a, a as a commission based income it should be part of it if it isn't if the if the insurer is only accepting premiums on the basis of the base salary not inclusive of the commission then your benefits likely are not going to include the commission but they ought to and that is on your employer that's not going to be on the insurer because if the insurer is only taking in premiums based on the smaller amount that's because your employer has underreported it probably in order to save on the premium cost of having to insure you. So to the extent that you are underinsured, that's likely going to be an issue with your employer, not necessarily with the insurer. Having said that, in situations where you are properly being compensated, or at least where your pre-disability income is properly being calculated, the question then is, would the commensurate amount be adjusted to the current year? And that's really gonna be a function of the policy itself. So there are, all sorts of bells and whistles that can optionally be added into any base policy. And one of those would be so that the income is adjusted going forward. So where the salary for the position that you have goes up year over year, the benefit amount would correspondingly go up. Likewise, it can be done simply as a cost of living adjustment. So it would go up year over year based on more or less inflation. So those are different ways to get to more or less the same result, uh, but really, what it comes down to at the end of the day is looking at the policy, look at looking at re- what is required there, and then looking into how that has been executed by your employer. Tamar?
2: Yeah, to- totally agree, James. And you know, I think that fulsome response is, is very helpful because the real question here is, well, what is the insurance company going to look at when they're doing this any occupation analysis? And I think that one of the key factors here as well is, well, how do they calculate the disability benefit in the first place? Like I've seen disability policies where, you know, the definition of your earnings, those pre-disability earnings, where they will look at that as part of the policy wording, will include base salary commission, overtime pay, you know, wage increases for shift premiums, this kind of thing. And some policies don't at all. They're just completely silent on that issue. And so why is that significant? Well, you know, if it's gonna be something that this individual who wrote to us is gonna challenge the insurer, certainly I would be arguing to the insurer, well, if it was good to calculate the LTD benefit, then certainly it should be part of that calculation with the any occupation analysis. Now, again, this is an argument that we would make, you know, depends on the policy warning. But I want our listeners to understand that we're live to these issues, right? I mean, we understand the fact that these disability insurers are crafting these policies. They put the words in and they leave certain words out intentionally. And we try and keep them honest on the way that they are evaluating these claims so that it is fair to individuals like this who have, you know, salaries that have different compositions in them. And they should be given a fair shake when you're sort of doing that analysis of, well, what else could this individual do, given what their background was? But I agree with James that the starting point is actually the employer on situations like this. And it can be a tough argument to make on as a standalone basis to the employer to say, you underreported my earnings and therefore received lower LTD benefits, and I therefore have a claim against my employer what um, from an individual like myself who does some employment law, I, I wouldn't necessarily want to see a, a standalone claim against the employer just on that issue alone. Uh, but I suspect that it, we could roll that into something else with the uh, employer and, and give that some further thought if, in fact, it was the case that the employer had underreported.
3: Well, one of the things that's interesting, though, is... Most policies don't define how you calculate commensurate income. There right. are some that do. I'd say it's maybe, you know, a third or less will actually specify how you calculate commensurate income. And for all of those that are silent in a situation where, for whatever reason, the monthly benefit amount is under representing the actual income. It's not capturing the full benefits and commission, maybe legitimately, maybe not. But whatever the reason is, if there is no language that sets out how commensurate income is defined, there's a very strong argument that whether or not the bonus or commissions are included in the calculation of the monthly benefit, it would certainly be included in the calculation of the commensurate income level. And so that puts the insurer in a very difficult spot because it means that they are going to have to find an occupation that is going to satisfy the much higher commensurate earnings test. And in this particular case, this person that's writing in, that will be a very significant income that the insurer will be held to satisfying under the any occupation.
1: We are just about out of time, guys. I want to let you know that you can reach out to James and Tamar anytime. That's a good way right there, mydisabilityquestions.com free and anonymous. The phone call before we get out of here, one 855 and then finally that email, we always use help at disabilityrights.ca
0: and we'll catch you next time right here on the Disability Law Show. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.